This show is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, but no two people sleep alike. That's why Helix offers several different mattress models, each designed for specific sleep positions and preferences. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailywire and take their sleep quiz to find the mattress made for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, a stomach sleeper, a hot sleeper, or a cold sleeper, Helix has just the mattress for you. I took the Helix sleep quiz and was matched with a Helix midnight mattress because I wanted a medium firmness and I sleep on my side. I am sleeping so much better on my new mattress. Don't want to take my word for it? Well, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Take the quiz and order the perfect mattress right to your door, shipped for free. It's so quick and fun to unbox, and you won't believe how well you'll sleep. All Helix mattresses come with a 100-night trial and a 10- or 15-year warranty. Helix even offers financing options and flexible payment plans. A great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and a free bedroom bundle for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com dailywire and use code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. That's helixsleep.com slash dailywire, code HELIXPARTNER20. As you know, we always like to bring uh, eloquent and elegant intellectuals uh, on to, in a desperate attempt to raise the, the tone of the show. Uh, but this, this week we hit the jackpot. Charles Kessler is one of the finest writers uh, on the conservative side and one of the wisest. He's a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, editor of the Claremont Review of Books, host of Claremont's The American Mind video series, and the Dengler Dykema Distinguished Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College. Also, he is the uh, the employer of uh, my son, Spencer Clavin, no relation. Uh, and the only way we could get him on was by holding Spencer hostage so we can now release him. Charles, are you there? Yes, I am. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and uh, and uh, let me say also, you, you managed to pronounce the the distinguished name of my distinguished professorship correctly. So that's, uh, that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> oh, there you go. That, that's good. It was, it was a random hit. But, <laughs> you know, I, I want to talk to you. You have a new book out called Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline and Recovery of American Greatness. Uh, I've been reading in it and it's just really incisive, uh, uh, very broad-minded look at what's going on. Let's let's begin. It's called the crisis of the two constitutions. So let's start there. What what are the two constitutions? Um, the two constitutions are are first the what I call the founders constitution, which was the uh, original written one of 1787 as amended, um, and the principles of that constitution that you know came before it, like the Declaration of Independence uh, contains, um, but also the the kind of uh, American character that the Constitution and the principles produce. Because I think um, if you look at American politics um, too narrowly, you don't really see the ambitiousness of the American Revolution. It was really about producing a new kind of human being, an American citizen, uh, with certain virtues and, uh, and, and certain uh, energy and adventurousness and so forth. Um, and and the founding is not just about founding the institutions. It's also really about founding American and American citizenship. Um, and that's the first constitution in the fullest sense. The second, the competing constitution is the liberals constitution, which really uh, comes from the progressives. 
a hundred years ago. And so I call that one the progressive constitution. They call it the living constitution. And my point, the point of the book really is that American politics is in such a perilous state because we really are in a kind of pre-revolutionary situation, torn between two constitutions for the same country. You know, it's not a, you're not in a good position. You're not in a good place if you're, if you have one nation and two constitutions competing uh, for its loyalty, competing to constitute what that nation ought to be. And, but I'm afraid increasingly that's where American politics is going. It's moving from what political scientists sometimes call normal politics to what they call regime politics, where uh, the point of the latter is that you're really fighting about what is the regime, who who rules, and what are the purposes for that rule. So that's a that's a uh, uh, as I say a uh, an unfortunate, unhappy, and perilous place to be in. When you when you talk about the living constitution, I mean, whenever I'm talking to a uh, left winger and they talk about the they say the Constitution is a living document. I always say yes, but it's not a blank document. Is there, does the living Constitution mean anything besides anything the left wants it to mean? <laughs> well, that's, that's a very astute question. Um, I think the answer is yes, but practically speaking, it means the living Constitution is what the liberals say it is at any given point. Because the point of the living constitution is to be Darwinian. Um, and, and, you know, the guy who sort of invented it, Woodrow Wilson, talked that way. He said this was a Darwinian idea, meaning that whatever the constitution needs to be to survive, whatever the constitution needs to be to prevail, uh, whatever liberalism needs to prevail in our current politics, that's legal, that's constitutional. That's the ethical standard that they're applying. And so that is open to almost anything because, you know, politics may, may challenge liberalism in many ways, and, and they're open to almost every possible response. But it means substantively one thing, which is um, the principle of change. The only principle they really uh, regard as timeless as enduring is the principle of change uh, itself. Everything else in the Constitution they think of primarily as an 18th century um, inheritance. And their attitude is, uh, you know, the Constitution was a great document for the 18th century, but now, you know, in the first and the 20th, now in the 21st century, we really need something much more modern, much more with it, much more open to growth, to experimentation um, and to uh, to remaking the, the the citizen body itself uh, in the image of um, liberalism. So, so how do we get to the point where the Constitution, as as presented by the founders, and this living Constitution, how do, historically did we get to the point where they are actually in such tension? that we don't know which is going to triumph over the other? Uh, the, uh, in the beginning, a hundred years ago, when, they, when, when Woodrow Wilson and uh, other progressives began to talk about the living constitution, um, they did present it as a kind of evolutionary extension of the old constitution. And so for about 50 
years or more, <clears throat> liberals uh, talked uh, that line. They took that line, which was that the two are actually not opposed to each other. They're going to converge, uh, just like they used to <laughs> talk about the Soviet Union, you know, socialism and communism on the one hand converging with capitalism. That was the way they regarded the two constitutions for, you know, two generations, let's say. But beginning in the 1960s, that's the historical period where uh, it became obvious both to conservatives and to liberals that they weren't really talking about how to interpret the same constitution. They were talking about which constitution they ought to interpret. Um, a, the, the living constitution, the one that was open to uh, a constant uh, a parade of new rights and new programs designed to um, achieve those rights and thus no permanent limits on government power really were conceivable. Is it that constitution we're interpreting or is it the constitution of, of the founders which assume that human nature is more or less fixed and that human rights are not a constantly evolving and changing thing but pertain to what is permanent in human nature, um, and that a constitution that attempts to protect uh, permanent rights has to be um, relatively unchanging. Uh, not completely unchanging. I mean, we have had, you know, 27 amendments, and we may have more, and that, that the provision for amendment was built right into the Constitution to begin with. But when we amend the Constitution, we are, in a way, following its rules. Uh, and so still acknowledging its uh, authority. Um, and what the living constitution does is it doesn't really need the formal mode of amendment anymore. It amends things through Supreme Court opinions or more often through simple regulatory, um, uh, you know, creation of rules. And most of our laws, as you know, uh, these days don't come from our elected representatives in Congress, but from the unelected, um, you know, deep state or administrative state, which is a creation of the living constitution, a growth out of the living constitution. So you have these two constitutions, these two visions really of America struggling with one another. And you talk about the different ways this could work itself out. And one thing you mentioned is, is federalism. And I think we're sort of we're sort of noticing this real struggle going on between the the states uh, and D.C. that's has a different tone than it than it's had before. And meanwhile, you've got states both on the left and the right saying we're going to be a sanctuary city for immigrants or we're going to be a sanctuary city for guns. Do you see a new birth of federalism coming or do you think that that's just too problematical to continue? Well, Drew, I think you're right. I mean, one way we could work ourselves out of this uh, pickle we find ourselves in might be to, to uh, you know, a renaissance of federalism. Uh, but that's very unlikely. Uh, I, I mean, liberalism has spent, you know, a hundred years basically um, creating a, a, a national political community with a national government of, of almost limitless powers at the top of it. And it has created a whole series of rights uh, welfare rights and now identity rights, uh, you know, and sort of sexual identity and gender identity rights and so forth. The point of which is um, these rights cannot be vindicated except from the top down, except from the federal government down. And so 
federalizing our political community, nationalizing it more and more. So now, you know, it's, it's, it's beggar's belief that the left would agree that this, the way out of this is to agree to disagree. And let's just let's uh, return things to the state, you know, so that Utah can have its kind of abortion law and New York can have a very different kind of abortion law and live and let live. Uh, that's, you know, I don't see how liberalism can do that uh, with a straight face. And, and uh, conservatism would be interested in it, I think. Um, but I, because it's so improbable, uh, I'm afraid it's uh, not really a viable solution and we're going to have to fight this out. Well, you mentioned the other ways forward that you can see are uh, actual secession, uh, possibly uh, instead of a cold civil war that we're having now, uh, a hot civil war. I, I, th- those those both seem unlikely to me. Am I wrong about that? No, I, I, I think they are unlikely, and I hope they remain unlikely. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is a, a different kind of, uh, I spoke in the beginning about this being a sort of pre-revolutionary situation. Um, it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't seem like so dire a, a condition, because when we think of revolution, we think of a sort of huge social uprising, like the French Revolution, you know, a, an eruption of mass violence, um, and with it, uh, you know, uh, uh, enormous amounts of carnage and social change uh, coming quickly. Um, but this is a different kind of revolution. This is a rolling revolution that really has been going on for 100 years. Uh, and uh, it, it, you know, it, it advances, and then it's a, there's a kind of uh, generational um, uh, uh, watermark that it reaches. But uh, uh, 10 or 20 years later, it, it resumes the advance again. Uh, it rolls forward to the next one. So I think there, there have been like three major waves of the liberal revolution already in the 20th century, and we're now on the verge, it looks like, of a fourth one. Um, it, it, however, the result is no less revolutionary, even though um, it, it arrives peacefully or relatively peacefully and in stages. Um and so this is the this is the problem getting it through our head just how much change there has been to American politics and to the American political order in the last hundred years already. Um, so that America is in many ways a very different country than it was, you know, even thirty years ago, much less fifty or a hundred uh, years ago. And I, I think the Trump phenomenon, in a way, is is a kind of recognition by vast numbers of people, you know, at least at least the 74 million who voted for him, but I think many more beyond that probably, uh, that the country is changing right in front of our eyes. And normal conservative politics has been unable to either, uh, certainly to arrest that change, but even to admit it uh, and to discern the, you know, the, the dimensions of it, to be honest with the American people about what has actually happened to their country uh, over the past, you know, especially the past 20 years, but really going back for a long time, even before that. So the book is called The Crisis of the Two Constitutions by Charles Kessler. We talked about the two constitutions. 
what do you see as the crisis? I mean, if there's not going to be a hot civil war, uh, if there's going to be this rolling revolution and the rebellion that was kind of symbolized by the Trump voters, uh, what kind of crisis do you foresee resolving uh, this this problem? I think it's hard to foresee. I mean, it's not nothing is I, I, my my view is that nothing really is inevitable in politics. And uh, we could find ourselves in a very different political situation if if something happens. You know, if, if events do matter, and if we suddenly find ourselves in a major war, I mean, a major war, if if the Chinese sink a U.S. carrier group uh, in the course of invading, uh, in the course of the Chinese invading Taiwan, let's say, okay, all bets are off. And the nature of American politics might change very quickly. But uh, COVID-19 looked like it might be such an extraneous shock to the system, uh, you know, an event, an unanticipated event that um, could rewrite uh, or redraw the lines of politics. But it did. It turned out that, you know, COVID was almost, uh, you know, in a month or two, assimilated into the existing crisis, assimilated into the existing debate between the two constitutions, only now we had more things to argue about. We could argue about masks and unmasking and about the vaccine and about, uh, you know, shutdowns and, and, uh, and reopening. Uh, and we've done that. So uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't predict exactly what the crisis is going to be, but it could easily, uh, it, it may not be one single thing, but a series of things. But one can see a close election, a disputed election uh, could trigger it. A Supreme Court decision that a large part of the country refuses to accept, uh, that, that uh, many states, in effect, nullify and refuse to have enforced in their own uh, d- domain, um, could be the precipitating cause for a, um, a crisis. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think a civil war of... Uh, uh, a shooting civil war is immediately likely after such a precipitating event, just because uh, America is a very messy country now, and you know red states and blue states um, uh, span the country. It's not like there's a you know a southern confederacy that is sort of territorially distinct, um, and and it could secede uh, easily from and dramatically from the country. It's messier than that now, so it's hard to see. But I, I, you know, the, the what happened um, in both of the elections, 2016 and 2020, um, in which Trump was involved, gives you some idea of how easily, um, you know, there could be a turn to uh, a drastic political action, including, alas, perhaps even uh, violence. I've only got a couple of minutes left, but I just want to point out the book Crisis of the Two Constitutions in the subtitles, The Rise, Decline and Recovery of American Greatness. That sounds kind of hopeful. Do you foresee a recovery of American greatness? Well, the recovery part is really um, the book has three parts. The first part is on the founders constitution. The second on the on the liberals or the progressives constitution. And the third is about the conservative response to this impending crisis, so this growing disaffection between uh, the two constitutions, this distancing and this divide between the two constitutions. And I talk mostly about Reagan and Trump, 
um, because the, Reagan is the most successful conservative statesman. Trump was uh, might have been, you know, if things had worked out uh, differently, uh, a, a very successful. He remains, of course, a very important um, example of uh, right-wing political uh, activity and possibilities. Um, but the right has has not succeeded in restoring the founders' constitution. That's, in a way, what they've been trying to do since Reagan, at least, and even before Reagan. Um, and and Ray, and the odd thing is that it, by the end of his term, Reagan realized that, and by the end of his term, Trump also realized it. Mm-hmm. They're sort of connected by the fact that in Reagan's farewell address, this would have been 1989, <clears throat> he said, you know, that... that um, he took credit for what he called the Reagan Revolution. Um, it, not, it wasn't his term. He, he modestly accepted the term, but uh, others had used it. But, uh, you know, there had been, uh, the Cold War was about to be won. The economy was had been revived and would continue for two more decades in an amazing upward uh, ascent. Um, but he said he had failed at the most important thing, which had been to institutionalize a new... American patriotism, uh, what he called an unambivalent American patriotism. And in the most poignant paragraph in the in his farewell address, he said, you know, uh, uh, America is this is a different country than it was when I was a a child, when I grew up. Uh, Reagan said, when I grew up, you could learn your patriotism on the streets. You would get you would get it in the schools from your from your teachers. You'd get it on television or in radio in popular media and the newspapers from, you know, your parents and everyone around you. But now, speaking in the 1980s even, um, he says that, you know, the media, the uh, Hollywood, the television networks don't teach patriotism uh, in the way that they used to do. And young American parents just aren't sure what they're supposed to teach their kids anymore. Is America a good, a force for good? in the world, or is it not? Hmm. And that unambivalent patriotism, he said, was essentially lost. He, you know, he, he had tried to bring it back. He succeeded a little bit in bringing back a, uh, a, a patriotic uh, revivalism, but, but it was not institutionalized. And at the end of his term, his one term, uh, Trump created the 1776 Commission, Right. Which precisely the same to figure out how to institutionalize a patriotic culture again in America, beginning with the schools, the K through twelve schools. I was uh, a member of that commission, which was um, I, I like to say the most efficient government commission in the history of government commissions, because it is it did its, it did its work in about two weeks uh, and produced its report. Um, but the report was a lament, uh, in a way, for uh, the damage that had been done, but also a call for action. And I think there is some hope that um, reasonable people on the left, and there still are some, um, will join reasonable people on the right in believing that we really do have to uh, fill up the empty center of our politics with a, a new kind of, um, of uh, patriotism. Um, and that uh, there are some signs that it's possible that that that's not a crazy project. I mean, uh, I'll leave you with this, I guess. In California, 
you know, the same very Democratic, very liberal electorate that voted for Biden by more than 70 percent um, in California also at the same time voted to um, refuse the left's invitation to uh, 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 repeal Prop 209. In effect, the left was saying, let's bring back overt racial quotas and racial discrimination in college admissions and in state contracting and so forth. And that was voted down by more than 11 percent, by a very large margin, by the same voters who voted for Biden. So maybe even liberal voters now are beginning to think they need to draw some lines. And that they're not prepared to go all the way with identity politics and with the far left uh, of the party. And if that's true, then I think, again, there there may be some possibility of a uh, of a uh, sort of rapprochement between left and right in this country. Well, let's I have to stop you there, but that at least some some hope. And I appreciate it. Uh, The book is called The Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline and Recovery of American Greatness by Charles R. Kessler. Uh, Charles, thanks so much for coming on. I hope you come back again. That was uh, really incisive. And I, I appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. I appreciate the invitation. 